but when you really break down kind of how much am I worth versus how hard am I working, the numbers start to look pretty different. And it's important that people are, are open about this. And yes, in success, in the event of, you know, what we would call an exit, whether that's listing or a sale, someone can become very wealthy, but there's an extraordinary amount of hard work. There are lots of ups and downs and you know I go back to what is your goal with what you're building and what is what feels right for you within certain guardrails depending on where you are in your life right now and and what sort of business you're, you're trying to build. Welcome to CEO School. I'm your host Sanira Madani and I believe that you deserve to have it all. Less than 2% of female founders ever break 1 million in revenue and less than 25% of women are breaking the C-suite glass ceiling. And our team at CEO School is on a mission to change that. Each week, you'll learn from incredible mentors who are breaking the statistics, as well as women well on their way, sharing how they defied the odds so that you can do it too. If you are an ambitious woman who wants to create a life of impact through financial freedom, self-growth, and find confidence in your voice, Grab a seat because class is officially in session. This episode is sponsored by The Club, a quarterly box and digital monthly community to help you level up in leadership and life. Learn more today at join.theceoschool.co slash the club. Hi, everyone. Welcome to CEO School. This is your host, Sanira Madani. And today I am so excited to welcome one of my dear friends, Nisha Dua, who is a general partner at BBG Ventures. There are not a lot of women in VC world. And Nisha is actually a partner on a fund that she co-founded with Susan Lynn in 2014. And BBG Ventures is a New York-based early stage VC fund. And she has just finished raising a $50 million round for BBG Ventures. And they invest in all sorts of incredible tech companies, commerce companies, and women-founded companies. And there's so many incredible startups that she's been involved in, such as The Wing, Zola, Pymetrics, KiwiCo, and so many others. And so I'm going to welcome Nisha to the show because I am just so honored to have her, not only as my friend, as a woman in tech, a woman inventor, and just a woman doing really cool stuff. And so Nisha, welcome to CEO school. I'm so excited for today's episode. Hey, Sanira, it is so good to be on the show with you. And I was just thinking earlier before we got on here that, you know, we've kind of grown up in this industry together around the time you were launching what was then Fat Merchant. I had just started BBG Ventures. You were one of the first pitches I took. I didn't invest. It was the biggest mistake I've ever made. We can talk more about regrets we've had as investors later today, but it's such a delight to see you guys out there just growing and building this incredible company, which now has a new name, which I'm so excited for. I'm just really thrilled that we're going to get to kick it today. I'm so excited. And Nisha is actually Australian. So that beautiful accent of hers, she's just as beautiful in person as her beautiful voice. And it's so funny because Nisha and I actually met through a friend and got to know each other. And when I was actually launching Fat Merchant and was thinking about, this is kind of one of the things I didn't even know about venture capital. Most women don't even know that there is an entire world of funding out there, financing options for a business. So when I was first learning about venture funding and we had, uh, we're just getting started, I did pitch to BBG Ventures and did not land the investment. And so that is 
I was definitely so disappointed, but also it wasn't a bad thing because it was one of the early pitches that I had. There was a lot to work on and I got such great feedback on things that I needed to go apply, not only to my pitch and to the business, which ultimately now I've raised over 200 million in venture capital. So it worked out just fine. And it's really amazing that Nisha and I have always stayed connected through that process. And I think it just goes to show that failures even aren't actually failures. It's, it's, it's actually all learnings in our journey. And so Nisha, I remember early stage, not even knowing that my company was investable. So can you just talk about that a little bit of like breaking, what does it even mean to have like an investable company? Yeah. And I realized that I sort of just jumped in because I'm so excited. So we can talk about that or I can give like a quick overview oh my God, on I me didn't... and BBG yes. Ventures. I just like went yeah? right into the I'm like so, so ready for I'm the so substance. Ready. I'm so ready. Okay, yeah. introduce, our, introduce yourself to our guests and uh, tell us a little bit about you and tell us a little bit about BBG Ventures. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I have a bit of a varied background. I think in musical theater, they call it a triple threat, but um, I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, then a management consultant for Bain and Company, ended up as a media executive running strategy and operations for the 40 brand portfolio at AOL. And then I launched BBG Ventures. And in the middle, I've been a founder as well of kind of this consumer platform that uses software to do mentorship at scale for young women and professionals in technology. And that's called Built by Girls. But, you know, I was a, you know, as a lawyer, I really hated it. I was super depressed. I was much more interested in the business dynamics of deals that I was working on when I was in my early twenties. That's how I found my way into consulting. Bain was an extraordinary experience to get a really exceptional kind of problem solving uh, toolkit. And, and I worked with a lot of fortune 500 companies, always knew I wanted to be in tech thought about, you know, one of the big companies on the West Coast, but had a long-term love affair with content, with New York City, ended up at this company called AOL that I didn't know still existed coming from Australia, you know, but for my AIM screen name, Nish Nish 67, and found myself working for this extraordinary... Are we sharing that? Yeah, tell me. Yeah, what's yours? It's so embarrassing, but because I love my audience so much, here it goes. I know it's going to bite me. Hot and spicy 921. Yes. Well, you're still hot and spicy. Hot so. and spicy. What is that? Hot and spicy <laughs> 91. There you have it. Well, I'm still niche six, seven on all social media. So you can find me Twitter, Instagram, etc. I am that not one's hot spicy <laughs> on any social media. <laughs> that one's that one's carried over, but it was all I knew about AOL. And so I was suddenly in charge of running strategy and ops for this 1400 person group, you know, it was a public company at the time, but really operated internally like a startup. Um, And while I was there, I had the opportunity actually to take over our celebrity entertainment gossip website, which is not where you thought this story was going. Um, And it was a time just before paid advertising had taken off on Facebook and you could still really build um, a brand organically on the platform. And so I was sort of a self-taught editor-in-chief, product manager, growth hacker. I grew that brand in traffic about four times over the course of nine months. I hired five 17-year-old girls to turn it into a site for girls built by girls. And that was how I came up with the idea actually for this platform built by girls where we connect young women all across the country with professionals in tech. And we've made about 
30,000 unique matches between girls and professionals at companies like Amazon, Uber, Twitter, Spotify, to help them build their first networks into tech. And it was around this time, actually, that Susan, who's now my partner, and was actually... Yeah. For a second, because that is one of the most, my most favorite things about you um, is Built by Girls and all the work that you put into this platform to help young women find mentors, find people in tech that they can learn from, that they can connect with, they can actually grow their networks and their career um, across the board and 30,000 connections. I remember when I met you in New York, you you handed me a few stickers. Like I remember the hashtag Built by Girls. And I'm on every laptop and like computer screen all around our office. And it was so inspiring to our early team at Fat Merchant because we were all women too. We're all girls. And we had never built, I I was never in technology. I never knew how to build a software. Yet we were here building software tech and payments. And just that little hashtag that was like on our laptops built by girls, even just that was so meaningful for us. So I wanted to pause here and I'm so excited for the growth that built by girls has had. Thanks. Well, I really appreciate that. And, and what you say is true, right? Like there's this whole thing, we can only, you know, be what we see, right? And that was really the intention with, within which Built by Girls was founded. And I think there are lessons for young women as there are for adult women who are trying to build something or are doing something for the first time, which is no one has all the answers when they start, right? And, and you've, you know, you, you're sort of admitting that. I'm admitting that about starting a venture firm. The way to learn and to build something is to talk to other people who've done it before you. And they can be your peers, they can be professional mentors, but you know, we need to put that power in the hands of every individual so that they can go on and kind of build the things that are going to grow like Fat Merchant or help them find that first job. And and that was really the intent of Built by Girls. And that's also how we change and flip the diversity script because not everyone has access to those connections. So we we have to like actively build those connections, particularly for young women and, and minority youth in this country. Well, I love it. And it's super admirable and you're making the change and uh, you had definitely an effect on me and my business. And so we're excited to continue to support Built by Girls. So we'll be linking some of that in the show notes today. Okay. So carry awesome. on. So carry okay. on. So BBG Ventures, you know, I'm working with all these young women, right? And they're on my celebrity gossip website. And Susan, my partner, had been really following the female consumer throughout her entire career from ABC Entertainment to Martha Stewart to Guilt Group. And we came together around three insights, which in 2021 feel so obvious, but in 2014 were not. And they were, you know, women driving 85% of purchasing decisions or influencing them, women actually being the power user of nearly every single mobile and social platform out there, Pinterest, Instagram, you name it, except for Reddit, but they can have that one. And then finally, young... (laughs) We didn't want it anyway. And then young women like these girls that I was working with, increasingly being the early adopter, right? Powering the success of platforms like Snapchat and new brands now like Glossier. And what we thought was wouldn't founders who really understood their end consumer have a unique competitive advantage 
in building for a consumer who looks a lot like them. And so our thesis was really simple. You know, these founders had been overlooked, but they were coming out of, you know, they weren't coming out of Silicon Valley engineering jobs. They were coming out of industry where they'd observed a problem, right, or business school and, and wanting to solve a unique pain point they too had experienced. And, and we really felt that that was alpha, right? That was an overlooked opportunity. There was white space. It was being incredibly underfunded by traditional venture capital, um, but that we actually as former operators would have connections to meet those women who were building these companies. And so we took the idea actually to the CEO of AOL and he said, I agree with you. The future is female. Let's, let's fund this, this venture firm. So we launched at AOL in 2014 we did two proof of concept funds there, $10 million. Out of those, we, we invested in companies like Zola, companies like The Wing, like Blue Land. Um, and in 2019, we left actually to launch a fundraise for this new fund, which is a $50 million fund. And I would say what's evolved about that fund is the, the gem of the idea around the consumer is still the same. We still back, you know, at companies with at least one female founder, diverse founding teams who really understand their end consumer. But I think it's important to recognize the consumer is rapidly evolving. What's important is it doesn't look like that traditional white pale male venture capitalist, but it's it's black, it's Latina, it's Asian, you know, it's young, it's old, right? It's diverse it's and multi-generational. Brown. It's brown, it's brown. <laughs> um, and so we're also really looking at very intersectional, very intersectional teams. In fact, uh, 70% of the investments in the new fund and fund three are led by a person of color. Um, And we're really focused on what that consumer is demanding, right? This consumer is observing that a lot of things in the world, big, big problems and needs no longer work for them anymore. Healthcare, how we work, how we educate our children, how we think about the climate actually and our responsibility. So we're investing across some of these very big categories uh, in companies that we think have the ability to shift an existing paradigm. That's incredible. I'm honored to be your friend and I'm so excited for your journey at BBG Ventures. Is it Built by Girls Ventures? Is that what it stands for? It's a hat tip to Built by Girls. We didn't call it Built by Girls Ventures. And this is like such an interesting conversation because I know you work with a lot of women through CEO school and you're, I think, such a great role model for women CEOs. And we... We intended actually to kind of keep that just as an acronym so that eventually we'll be able to say, you know, we have one of the best venture capital portfolios in the country that just happen to be run by women, right? And it will be a great day when that doesn't have to be the call out. I agree with that. Uh, Well, this is exciting. Congratulations on launching your last fund successfully, $50 million in the bank investing in such great companies. I'm so excited to see where it goes. And so with that, going back to my first question, because I was like ready to dive right in (laughs) and I deprived the audience of all your amazing story. I want to go straight into it because something that we're so proud of at CEO school is actually the tactical takeaways that the audience can have. And so many women listening today have businesses, but they don't know if their business is investable. Can you kind of just break down what is venture capital and how do you know if your company is investable or not? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I agree, tactics are everything and, and we should give people the tools with which they can figure figure this stuff out. So, you know, venture is a really interesting place to find investment, but it's not for everyone, right? Um, so the way a venture capital investor thinks about their business is I have a certain pool of money to invest. And that pool of money gets divided across, call it 20 or 30 companies. Um, And if you think about my pool of money, $50 million, I might be giving, you know, a million dollars to each company to invest in um, and then reserving some of that to invest in it later. Now, venture capital operates on what's called a power law. So probably like one or two of your investments what are ultimately going to be successful enough to drive a multiple of a return on that original investment, right? So if I have $50 million, firstly, when I get returns, I have to pay back all my investors first. So if I make $50 million, it all goes back to the investors. So I have to make more than $50 million, right? I want to make 100, 150. But because of the power law, right, like the success rate of startups, and this is not to turn anyone off starting a startup, I think it's something like one or 2% of startups will ultimately succeed and become these big, what we call big outcomes. So then you play out the math and you think, oh, okay, if one of my companies has to succeed, that means one of my companies at minimum has to make me $100 million for me to return my fund and pay it back. Yes. So then you start saying like, wow, for a company to make $100 million for me, remember, I don't own the entire company. I might own 10% of the company, right? So if $100 million is 10%, it has to exit for a lot of money for this to play out. And so when a venture investor looks at you and says, this isn't a VC-backed business, that's how they're thinking about this. So they're really thinking, does this business have the capacity to be a $1 billion business by the time it gets acquired or by the time it lists on the stock exchange. So we're thinking really, really far out. So when, when, when we talk to companies and we say, oh, this just isn't for VC, it's not about being personal, right? It's, it's actually about the math that our business model is predicated on. So we can also dive deeper into like, what are some of the things to think about when you're like, am I a small business or am I a startup that could need VC money? Yeah, no, I love that breakdown. It makes complete sense. And it's, it's literally, you're right. It's one to two companies out of your entire portfolio that are going to be in that unicorn status or that, that are going to bring all that capital back for you. But it's also really scary, right? I don't know. I think for me, um, personally, I never thought I was like, I didn't even know that you could go build billion dollar businesses. You heard me say this so many times before. I didn't even know that it was possible for my business to, I thought a hundred million dollars in value was like my goal for fat merchant. I don't even know where that number came from. It was literally pulled out. I was like, okay, I want to take it to hundred million in value. And we did three times that on our last recap. And now we're on path for that unicorn status, but I didn't even know that was possible. And so can we, kind of take it back because I feel like if I was told that I had to be a billion dollar business earlier on, it might would have deterred me from even taking that investment because uh, it just feels so out of reach. So yeah. are all companies not investable then if you're not a million dollar, a billion dollar business? 
It's a great question. I mean, I think that venture capital and startups have become really on vogue and everyone wants to raise money. And that doesn't mean people shouldn't take capital to get their business off the ground, but it does in fact mean that not every business is a VC-backed business. But if I go back to the point you made, which is actually a true and good and important point, frankly, I think especially for women to be thinking about because we sometimes undersell what we're capable of a little bit. You know, if I think about what is a billion dollar business, it's important to for I think the people listening to you who are who are entrepreneurs to say, okay, well, what does that really mean? It doesn't actually mean that you're doing a billion dollars in revenue, right? Probably means you're doing a hundred million dollars in revenue. And then you look back and say, okay, how long might it take to build a business of that size? Now, some people have built businesses of that size actually very quickly, but typically speaking in venture capital, we do expect that it will take seven to 10 years to, to build a business of that size. And you guys are how old? Yeah, seven years old, exactly seven years old this year. And we're going to be an $80 million recurring business at the end of this year. So we're going to reach a hundred million next year, which will be at year eight. You're so exactly. right. Exactly. You know that. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. So yeah. you guys are like, you guys are right on the mark. Um, and, and I think it, but even that can seem out of reach, yeah. right? So, so the way to think about it, and this gets into selling your story, I'll come back to personal goals in a second, but is really like, can I create a business case that even when on paper in the Excel spreadsheet feels crazy, but that on paper tells me this is how I get to a hundred million dollar business. And with how many customers does that come true? With how many geographies does that come true? With how much product expansion into adjacencies does that become true? And then all of a sudden you have a product roadmap for a company where it feels a little bit more believable. And so the important thing to think about is, okay, so say I said that to you and you said, oh, wow, like that actually just feels really out of reach. Can you actually go put that back on paper? Because what you're selling is the potential for the business to become that. And what you're helping yourself understand is, well, with what amount of money could I make that become true? And that's the whole point of VC funding. So there is a little bit of chicken and egg there, right? It's not like you have to show that you can do it immediately, but you have to show a path to that and then potentially raise more money. Now, the flip side of that scenario is what are your personal goals? So I like to kind of create a difference between, okay, what's a small business? And I'm going to say that in quotation marks and we'll come back to that. And what's a startup? So smaller business owners typically are focused on long-term stable growth, profitability. They want to grow within what feels comfortable for them. They own more of their own company and they typically bootstrap to get started, maybe by cobbling together personal savings, loans, credit cards, maybe some grants. A startup is very focused on their top line revenue number versus profitability. They're focused on growth potential. They have a very high tolerance for risk and failure. And the goal is like really to get big as fast as possible, but you own a lot less of your company and you have pressure from VCs like us who say, okay, these are the milestones I wanna meet. What is one, I think, defining feature of a startup, though, is very often you need that capital to develop a new piece of technology, 
or a new business model. And that capital will help drive that growth really fast. And I think that is like a very defining feature of of venture capital. And it's something that Mark Andreessen has a great blog post about. His example is like, what is the chip? You know, the technology, the piece of software or the chip for this company that requires capital for it to grow fast. So that's kind of one way to think about, you know, do I want to be a small business or do I want to be a startup? I love that. And and you're spot on with that. I think it's it's also the what what you're setting out to do from even a risk appetite perspective, right? So you could, the way that I've always viewed it, because I personally now invest in companies and I have a small fund, not BPG Ventures, but um, it's really exciting to be on the other side and to invest in companies. And you know, they may not be billion dollar businesses, but I have invested in companies that I feel like there is scalability and that I'm going to have a great return for my money. And so exactly. I think there's also a difference in venture being backed by venture capitals or being backed by angel investors as well to then get to that point. And I think a really interesting point that you made is showing the potential for a billion dollars. That doesn't mean that you have to be the one to get there. And so I think scalability, um, like that, this word just comes to mind to show is your idea or your business repeatable? right? Mm-hmm. For example, if you are a hairstylist, you are a single individual person that is contributing to, maybe you have a salon, maybe you're doing the haircut. That's not, that's a great business. It could be a really, it could be the greatest salon in New York city doing millions in revenue, but it's not scalable, right? So you can't grow that. You can grow it in terms of maybe franchises, but it's not venture backed because it's not a product or something that can be scaled without you or without that service itself. Whereas a piece of technology or a piece of software, a subscription service or an idea that you have that can go into pretty much many, 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 many hands and it can be repeatable and, uh, and it can be scaled that way. So it's not required by that one individual contribution. And so I think that might be a, a good way for the audience to kind of understand if their business is investable. Right. And then we can go dive into what type of investment. So then the other types of investment can be first angel investing, getting friends and family to go invest in your business. And this was my path. My path wasn't just straight of like, here's an idea, here's VC funding. My path was I had an idea and I was actually a service-based business at one point selling merchant services door to door. Like that was like part of my journey there. And I realized that this subscription-based idea for it was really scalable through software and I had to go build software. Um, and that was that chip. That was the chip that you were talking about. And that chip required a lot of capital. And I needed that capital because I couldn't build it on my own without having to go hire engineers and to go get developers and to go get product managers. And there was so much that needed to get done that I couldn't afford um, to do by myself, but I needed to go invest in that piece, which would then help me for scale. But it was scalable. And my next piece of that was that just to say, and, oh, hey, let's go get venture. I did a round with friends and family. I started pitching to local angel networks and got the investment in from local angels. I don't think when they invested in me, they thought I was going to be a billion dollar business, but it had a potential. It was just showing the potential, but they knew that they wanted to get out once the company was at a certain size, that they, they would get bought out by a VC that would come in and do the next round of financing. So can you maybe talk us through? Yeah. Uh, how the funding level works, because I wish somebody had explained that to me earlier on. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I will just, you know, I think those two words you used, repeatability and scalability, when we're assessing kind of the potential market for the company are really critical. And you're absolutely right that that is what drives the need for funding and creates a differentiator or creates something also that is proprietary, right, or defensible. So if I think about this spectrum, and, and I have this slide of funding sources for the smaller business business, and it's not just for the smaller business who is not VC backable, it's for anyone getting off the ground. I mentioned personal savings, loans and credit cards, maybe non-dilutive grants, or even crowdfunding, right? There are people who've started their businesses on Indiegogo or Kickstarter. And then I think also the, the money that you're talking about, friends and family and angels, and those ones are hard, right? Because some people will say, well, I don't know what sort of friends and family you have, but I certainly don't have those. And that's that's why I mentioned a few of those other potential bootstrapping ideas too. But I do think when you're getting off the ground, these smaller checks from people who, who want to make a return on investment that might not be as much as venture capital can be a really great angle. And I think in, in many cities, there are city-based angel syndicates, like I'm sure there are in Orlando, um, um, you know, there certainly are in New York. And so they can be a great avenue. And then I think about, you know, next idea is an accelerator and incubator. Now, they typically take sort of, let's call it 7% of your business for 100, 100K investment, uh, but they often offer a lot of services that can help you with the things you need to get your company off the ground. And then we get into institutional investment like them capital. Another way to frame that once you know those sources is, okay, what are the stages that I should be thinking about? And when is something considered investment that's kind of in the form of debt? Not necessarily that you have to pay it back, but that would be on what's called a convertible note wow. or a safe note. And it's basically an agreement that the person's money will turn into ownership in your business later. And, and that's very typical at kind of the friends and family and angel stage that you talked about. It's even common at what we might call the pre-seed stage. So when we're talking about early stage companies, you mentioned friends and family or angel. And I would say that's often when you're raising, you could be raising 100K, you know, 500K, right? Something small. And then we talk about these newer sort of more institutional size rounds, pre-seed or seed, that could be anywhere from raising a million dollars to four or $5 million today, which can seem kind of wildly out of reach when you're getting started. And that's typically a price round where you're actually giving up ownership in your company. I will return actually just to that earlier conversation it's possible to make a lot of money even with what I call a small business. So I like to give the example of native deodorant versus Casper. Uh, native deodorant sold to, I think it was PNG or Unilever, PNG, I think, for $100 million. The founder of that business only ever took 500K in investment to get off the ground, right? In the way you described. And he owned over 90% of that company by the time he sold it, right? So he wanted to grow a profitable business. And in fact, he did have a repeatable model, but it was perhaps not something that he thought was VC backable. And maybe he didn't want to grow with very high pressure from VCs. He made an extraordinary business. And that's why I put small business in quotation marks. Now, on the other hand, a company like Casper, the mattress company, they raised multiple, multiple rounds of funding. 
By the time they listed on the stock exchange, actually they listed at a valuation that was lower than their last private valuation. And there were also five founders of that company. I think we can do a separate episode on down rounds. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation, seriously. But you know, they they raised $375 million in funding. And, and this is not a, this is not like a one thing is better than the other. Um, but my point being that you don't have to raise VC to make a great business for yourself as an entrepreneur. So good, good thing to be thinking about. No, I love that you said that because I feel like there's this like, it, there's, it's so sexy, right? We all watch, it started with like Shark Tank. We all watch, we all watch these shows. We're all talking about investments. Everybody's company like starts at a valuation of $10 million. And actually many times the founders actually don't end up even making an exit. A lot of the times that they take on capital and these founders don't even return more capital than they've actually taken on an, an investment. And so it's not always the sexiest alternative. And we glorify fundraising nowadays. We absolutely glorify fundraising. And so I think it's this episode so great because there's good and bad on both sides. And sometimes the media and everything shows like the really sexy side of venture capital, but they're not sharing the stories of founders that have had bad investments or that they haven't been able to actually so much pressure from venture to grow so fast. One of my dear friends, Sophia Moroso, she literally talks about her failures um, in venture capital. And she's so loud and proud about it. Of all the mistakes that she made, she took on all this capital. She wasn't able to actually return the investment for her investors. And she said that she would have, she wouldn't have done it that way. Like now she has the experience. She's like, I want to start I, she didn't need the investment. And now she says that her next company, business class, she's not taking on investors. She's yeah. like, learned all of the yeah. lessons. And, and I'm a big fan of Sophia and how open she's been about that journey because I mean, obviously she did extraordinary things with Nasty Gal and uh, we met her very early on when she was building Girl Boss. And I think we felt the same, right? That Girl Boss actually didn't need venture investment. That was a really unique model she was setting up. And it's so exciting because, I mean, she's an extraordinary brand builder, right? Um, and business class can succeed on its own without the pressure of VC funding. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of pressure. I could speak for it firsthand. Seven years of building my company, having investors along. I've literally, I think when everything that you were talking about, I was like, man, check, 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 check. I also mm. went to a venture accelerator, by the way. That's how I met my CTO shock. So I've literally checked off <laughs> textbook venture, I would say. And it has been so rewarding, right? The rewards have been that I've been able to scale my company really fast, get it into the hands of customers that I would have never been able to do by myself, right? Door to door or like in a small market. Now we have 25,000 customers using on the direct side. I have over a hundred partners and SaaS companies with embedded payments that serve then their thousands of customers. And it's growing at such a rapid pace, which it's, you know, Stacks can be a household name. And that's something that's so cool to see my baby grow up. And it could literally be, it's revolutionizing the way that payments are done. And it, it's in everyone's hands and they can be, and now we're going worldwide and we're going international. And none of that would have been possible if it wasn't for venture investment, if it wasn't for me giving up that ownership. But at the same time, I don't own 100% of my company. I don't even own, I own very little of my company now because I've gone through four rounds of funding. And so people assume that, okay, Sonera has a billion dollar business. That doesn't mean that I get to take home or 80 million in revenue. That's not revenue coming home to. Right. 
it. And so I think it's really, it's just interesting to kind of share these stories. There are both sides, there's benefits to both sides, but there's also cons on the other side as well. No, there really are. And I think it's so important that you describe what you just did because, um, it's become sexy for a reason, but when you really break down kind of how much am I worth versus how hard am I working, the numbers start to look pretty different. And it's important that people are, are open about this. And yes, in success, in the event of, you know, what we would call an exit, whether that's listing or a sale, someone can become very wealthy, but there's an extraordinary amount of hard work. There are lots of ups and downs. And, you know, I go back to, what is your goal with what you're building and what is what feels right for you within certain guardrails depending on where you are in your life right now and and what sort of business you're you're trying to build i love that and just the only thing i would add for um for us women sometimes is really dreaming bigger i didn't even know that i could have a household name brand or that i could um build a company this big and so I don't want to take away that it's not sexy and that it can't be done. And I do think it's important to even look at the problem that you're solving. If it's a problem that you can solve for so many people, most, most women that are coming into any space or starting a company is because we feel really passionate about solving a problem. Right. Yeah. So, I think that's, that's so spot on. And it's actually, you know, we recently rewrote kind of our thesis for this fund and it literally is what you just said, which is we're, we're investing in companies that we think can reshape the lives of millions of consumers. And, and we said that specifically because we are looking for companies that will have this paradigm shifting impact that will shift certain industries and will be, as you described, repeatable and scalable. And so, you know, I really encourage all the founders who listen to you to actually ask themselves, you know, that question, what is it in success? I would want this to be if I had all the money in the world. And, and often actually very early on when we started, we gave this feedback to a number of um, founders who pitched us, right. Who came in and said, okay, this is exactly what I think I can build with what I have today. And if I got a little bit, I could grow it this much. And we said, no, go back and, and do what you and I have talked about, right? Which is demonstrate the potential. Show me how with everything you need, you could get this to a $100 million business. What does that look like? And what is really, and, and you've described it for Stacks, right? What is the overall problem you're solving for millions of consumers? And we can talk separately about what makes a great pitch, but that's the question that we're looking to see answered. I love it. I love that. And all of us need to be asking that question. And it's the passion around it too. Like, what would you do? Do you want to go to bed it's not just about the finance in your pocket. For me, I didn't want to go to bed not solving this problem and I want to go solve it for every single business owner out there. And that was part of like, I'm willing to do this. I want to do this um, because I want, I'm so passionate about the problem that we're solving. And I know you said we're going to talk about it later, but it was the, one of the final questions that I do have for today's episode of what makes a great pitch. You are pitched by so many companies. I pitched to you, what makes a great pitch? Because I think that this lesson can go for people who are raising capital, not raising capital, selling to a, cu a customer. We all need to nail 
the pitch of our company. So what makes a perfect pitch? Yeah. There was. Yeah. No, I love this question. It's my favorite question to talk about. So let's talk about it from a content perspective and then also a holistic perspective. So when you go online and you look for like what makes a great pitch, you're going to see a list of things, right? Like there has to be a problem and a market size and what is your product and your advantage and who's the team and how much traction do you have? And what's your strategy to go to market? Who's the competition? What are the unit economics? How are you going to use the money? All those things are important. But what they really ladder up into is kind of these three fundamental questions. Why this business or this product? Why now? And why you as a founder or a team? And, and that's, really, that's really helpful to kind of distill down to, right? Because you can, you can get like into the weeds creating your 27-page slide deck, but you may not have answered those fundamental questions with the investor. The investor is really trying to understand what is so unique about this product at this moment in time, given what's happening in the world, in terms of it having the capacity to impact the lives of millions, right? And then why are you so fundamentally qualified? And that doesn't mean you have to say, oh, I've done this exact thing before and now I'm going to go do it again, right? But maybe you've had a unique experience that led you to see like you, why this problem needs solving and you've assembled a team around you. And then I would ladder that up into really thinking about what is the overall story? I'm telling. And, and female founders are great because they've often got a personal story, but that story I think really can be the wrapper for those three things I describe. And I love to give this example of this company we invested in called Blue Land. Um, this woman, Sarah Pagey, started this company because she found all these, that everything she was giving her son had plastic in it. And she was like, why do we have so much plastic in the house? It's not good for us. So she developed a, a cleaning system that's actually refillable. She created a proprietary uh, formula tablet, like an Alka-Seltzer that you drop into a bottle of liquid and it creates your cleaning product. So you just order the tablet, you never have to buy plastic again. But what Sarah would tell you is, she is trying to rid every household of single-use plastic. Now, that is a big idea. And it might just start with three bottles of cleaning product, but when you think about it like that and you think about the opportunity, you say, wow, this is really significant. And then you get into those three questions. Why this product? Why now? And why this team? So then on the, you know, the sort of holistic side of delivering a great pitch, what I really encourage people to do in addition to sort of leading with that overarching big story is think about, can I tell this story without a deck? What, what would I say if I had to do that? Can I share why I think this is important and why I'm the best person to do it and really use my deck actually as supporting materials versus a presentation? Some of the best pitches are great conversations between two people. That can feel really, really hard to do. Not everyone's comfortable with it, and I'm not saying everyone has to do it, but I really encourage all of the founders listening to you in your podcasts to be able to do the 30-second version of their pitch, the three-minute version of their pitch, and the 30-minute version of their pitch, because the more and more you learn how to do that stuff, the more and more you'll get comfortable just having a conversation and also being able to pitch whenever you need to pitch. 
I love it. This has been so wonderful and so tactical. I can't wait for all of our listeners to deep dive. We've got lots of notes here coming for everyone here to go execute on and to go decide if we're going to be investable, if we're going to do venture, if we're going to stay in our lanes and own 100%. There's no wrong path to success. And uh, Nisha, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How can we support you and how can we support BBG Ventures? Because it's so cool to see more women in VC. Well, we, we just love meeting great founders. So follow us on Instagram at BBG Ventures or at Twitter at BBG Ventures and send us your DM, like slide into our DMs. Tell us about the company you're building. And we just want to back the best of the best female founders. So we look forward to meeting you all. I love it. I can't wait for you guys to slide into Nisha's DMs. Uh, thank you so much, Nisha, for being on the show. And we'll see you guys next week at CEO School. Thank you so much for listening to our podcasting show. Our team at CEO School works extremely hard to bring you the best content, authentic conversations, and expert guests curated every single week to keep you leveling up in leadership, business, and in life. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating telling us what you enjoy the most. We will be sending CEO School swag for the next 100 reviews, so don't miss out. Write a review and send us a screenshot at podcast at theceoschool.co to claim your swag. Again, it's podcast at theceoschool.co to claim your swag. Thanks so much. We love having you here.